0: look at like next generation, like what's in the horizon? Because we, we're we building our own products, right? So we know what's happening in the market today, what's happening in the market a year from now. But what do we think our customers are going to need three years from now, four years from now? So we're trying to look much further out there. Very, um, I would say big bets and venture on kind of next generation tech. Um, horizon four, as they like to say, right? We We, we currently have Horizon one, two, and maybe a.
1: Yo, this is Christian D. Evans with Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to our amazing podcast. This is where we reveal the top 1% of business concepts and systems and processes to scale eight and nine figure businesses. We interview top level eight and nine figure CEOs, business owners, and amazing TEDx speakers like David Meltzer, we got Nick Cavuto, Pascal Bachman, and so many others. And if you feel like this resonates with you, please share this with your friend, your family, and make sure you impact them as well. Because we're trying to spread the message on those that do not know how to scale eight nine figure businesses and talking higher level business concepts so guys remember enjoy the episode and be uncommon if you can cheers Thank you so much for tuning into Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And boy, we have a very special guest on today. She is an early stage venture investor with over 20 years of experience driving growth and successful exits for early stage consumer and enterprise startups. She has a proven ability to successfully initiate, structure, negotiate, and close strategic partnerships, capital markets and merger and acquisition transaction has deep industry expertise across mobile technology, financial services, telecom, and education. This woman has led investing in VC partnerships in North America and India for M12 Microsoft Venture Fund, and was the executive sponsor of the fund's female founders competition, and so much more. She currently is a managing director of Thomas Reuters Ventures. Please welcome my next guest, the one and only Tamara Stephens, how you doing today, Tambra? Great, Kristen. How are you doing? Oh, I am doing fantastic. Well, I am so excited about having you on, uh, just because you're just immense, immense amount of experience and expertise. But before we dive into all this, okay, which we're going to be unpacking a lot of fun stuff here shortly about the venture fund and everything that's going on with Thomas Reuters, I want to ask you the journey, right? I believe that there are certain pivotal moments in everybody's journey that were either You had to restructure your belief system. There were growing pains. There were certain failures that you had to learn from that were deep, but helped you become the person you are now. And I just want you to imagine that old Tamara and think about those one or two that were the most pivotal in your journey. What were those, Tamara?
0: You know, I think it was when I first decided to go to work for a startup. I worked in tech early on. um, at both Sun Microsystems and Silicon Graphics, and met a guy by the name of John McFarlane, um, who was the founder of software.com. And no, we were not a software portal, it was an email company. He went on then to found Sonos, which most of you probably have in your homes, um, your wireless systems. But John um, said, You know, I met him and uh, I was working at Silicon Graphics, and he said, you know, we've created this email system where you can have a bunch of email addresses on a single server, and that's gonna be a thing. You know, people are gonna want millions of users on the same domain. So, you know, as an example, Christian at, you know, I I guess, verizon.com, right? And you you used to have to break that up. And I said, really? I go, this sounds like great tech anyway. Turned out to be accurate. I ended up going in and, and leading sales for them in a very early stage company. Um, and all of my friends said, what are you doing? Nobody's going to get personal email. Nobody's going to get email to their, you know, to some sort of personal address. And they're, you know, going to keep getting voicemail. So it shows you how old I am. Um, but anyway, it turned out to be that, yes, everybody, not only do they have email, they all have 10 email addresses that they use for different purposes over the years. So um, I would say that was, you know, very telling. And then I, I moved on to work for another amazing guy by the name of Sky Dayton, who originally started Earthlink um, and then started Boingo. And once again, people were like, Wi-Fi? Are people really going to use Wi-Fi everywhere on their phones, on their laptops? And I'm like, how else are they going to connect? Um, Because as you know, everybody used to just plug a wire into their laptop or, and they certainly just use the cell service on their phone, but um, two certainly crazy inspirational founders early in my days in tech, which I think led me to not only want to do venture, but do a bunch of other startups, um, because both of them were incredibly inspirational.
1: So during those specific times, what were the limiting beliefs or maybe the um, the restructure of your own thought process to help you grow through that?
0: Well, I remember when Sky was telling me, he was like, look, we're going to connect all of these Wi-Fi networks together. So we're literally going to talk to every coffee shop, every hotel, every airport, every public Wi-Fi. We're going to figure out how to connect them all together so that you can have one click and just get on the system and we'll charge like a subscription. And I remember thinking, can this really be done? I mean, are these people all going to allow them to connect these networks together? And, you know, yes, the answer was yes, because they could get some revenue back for their Wi-Fi network in the early days. And now Wi-Fi is very much, uh, you know, free in many cases, or, you know, you pay for the simplicity of the access just from a single click. But um, back then you were paying for it, right? I mean, in, in the early days, even, even email you paid, you know, and when we were at software.com, people were willing to pay, you know, three, four $5 a month for an email address. Um, and that's gone and you're paying for other things now, but I think, you know, listening to these entrepreneurs say how it can be done, these founders, like this is the way it, it can be done. I obviously thought great idea if you can possibly do it. Um, And in both cases, they, you know, were were great engineers and and great founders. So um, they both had tremendous success. Both companies went public um, and and both did quite well. So I think that was to me, you know, my first two startups both did quite well. So I'm like, let's just keep doing this right. It becomes very addictive. What lessons
1: did you learn or or like what skills, because see what's so interesting about what you're just saying is I understand like sales, if people don't understand your product, there's a lot of education that you have to, you know, really input on the front end, which of course increases the sales cycle. So I'm curious, uh, definitely with a company that you had to do a lot of education on the front end to explain uh, definitely this new product. And you and I now see that it's integrated into our life. So streamlined, but it wasn't there at that point. So I'm curious, what 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 lessons did you learn during that period of time and I just I, I find that so interesting definitely on the educational aspect uh, with a, such a uh, really cutting edge service and product
0: yeah well, it's interesting because i I really think the foundation for both companies and the way they they both had really good engineering teams so and and you know I think because I led sales in both cases um I think we both had very good, Sales organizations, but I think one of the the foundations of why the both companies did well is, you know, we did our job really well and they did their job really well, and we weren't trying to play both positions. You know, I do I notice that now even as even as a VC, um, if the CEO is trying to do everything right, if the CEO is writing the code and doing the sales, it's it's just it's not going to work long term, right? You got to have people that can play the position. So I would say the lesson learned was first at software.com but it was repeated at 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 Boingo where, you know, I like to, it, it reminds me of a story somebody told me once they're like, okay, I, and I played softball, you know, back in, I grew up in Michigan and, and um, so, you know, softball, co-ed softball after work and, you know, grabbing a beer was a fun thing to do. And I remember playing on a softball team that these people were all pretty athletic they're pretty good but our shortstop wanted to play every single position if the ball was going into right field he would literally run from right field to the you know or from shortstop to right field and i'm like well, what the, then we don't have a shortstop I mean, what what are we doing? We were all over the place. Needless to say, that team was not very successful. We had one player who was really outstanding. The rest of us were decent though. And the thing is, if we would have all played our positions, we probably would have won a lot more games, right? Thank God there was beer after the game Um, because otherwise it would have been a train wreck, right? Um, But I think that was it. Like we really tried, like they would explain the product to the sales organization in both cases, break it down, lots of really good demos understanding the value like you said the value proposition of why would you buy this product right now in both cases i will say there was product market fit because people were getting their own email addresses right so i mean it was a thing to have you know personal email on your you know on your isp right so you would when you got your internet service provider you would get an email address that would go with that right so it was a thing from, you know, overall perspective of we were able, that part of the market had already been solved. People wanted it. Why did they want to buy it from us? And what was better about the technology? You know, the engineers did a great job explaining it. Boingo was a little bit harder, right? Because tying all those Wi-Fi networks together and saying, pay me a subscription so you can get, and it's still a thing, by the way, because you can still buy, you know, Boingo and you can connect on various airplanes, et cetera. So there's still a need for um, fi subscription, but they did a great job of explaining the tech so that we could go out and get all those coffee shops and airports to sign up so that we would actually have a product so that in, in, in position number two at Boingo, we were the, we had to sell two things. First, we had to go sell, Hey, take our technology so we can connect your coffee shops together. And then, Hey, mr person on the street you should buy a subscription right so it, it was a very different um different approach similar in a lot of ways but but also different just that it was even more consumer uh focused than than uh software.com was so yeah but both this awesome lessons.
1: no this makes sense okay and so let me ask you in regards to the, the skills that you acquired, right? And I love what you said there in the team, right? Each team member has a specific skill or a job requirement that they're better at it than anybody else, right? And I'm curious with your journey, what did you discover about yourself? That you're like, okay, hey, I'm actually better at X, Y, Z than anybody else on the team. And those skills that you obviously really dialed in, you're able to obviously now deploy with Thomas Reuters. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, I, it's still sales, right? I mean, it's basic sales. I, I'm pretty, you know, I'm a relatively technical person having grown up in the tech world. Um, but my big question to every engineer who creates a product that I have to go sell is why? Why do I want this? Tell me, you know, how does this work, right? Another company that I was at that we ended up selling to um, Synchronos um, was it was backup software, right? And for your phone, and I'm like, really, like, what do people, why do people need this? And I remember an engineer telling me, we can sell this to any big, you know, telco, Verizon, AT&T, anybody. And I said, why? And they said, well, because everyone drops their phones in the toilet. I go, they do? And they're like, think about it. A guy puts the phone in his pocket and there it goes. And so I'm like, that's my sales pitch. And it was hundred percent true. So Ver- Verizon actually bought so much of the software. It was crazy because they had, they had, you know, tens of millions of people that would go into their store and their big advertisement was if you lose your phone, if you drop your phone, if it falls in the pool or the toilet, we will give you your phone back and it will have everything on it. And all you had to do was pay $1 a month to make sure everything was on your phone. That doesn't exist now. We have the cloud, we have different technology. But back then, that wasn't the case, right? If you lost your phone, you lost everything, right? And so it's interesting to see how technology, you know, has grown up and how you, you know, could sell it along the way. So I think my superpower was really understanding what the value of that technology was, and then developing a sales pitch that was worthy of the dollars I was asking for.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that. Because like you said, it's just simplifying the messaging, right? Just that one little thing, boom, marketing. And then of course, not only were you able to sell it to, uh, was it Sprint or Verizon?
0: Verizon. We sold Verizon, right as well. We sold it to everybody, but yeah. So both of them,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. But then they were, you were able to help them also deploy that messaging, marketing message, that made them differentiate themselves from the market as well, uh, which is incredible. Now I want to talk a little bit and loop in Thomas Reuters because you guys are doing some very exciting stuff uh, with raising almost a hundred million dollar venture capital for a lot of early stage. I want to ask a little bit about the investment thesis a little bit uh, because your guys' investment thesis is slightly different. Um, than, than what i've I've heard before, and I think it's really good for our audience to understand exactly what that looks like because also Thomas Reuters, because it's such a, l- a large company and it's been around for for many, many years, people don't contextually uh, understand all the attributes and all the assets that Thomas Reuters brings.
0: Yeah, yeah. so Thomson Reuters is a very large company publicly traded. We're headquartered in Toronto, but we have um, big offices. I'm in our New York City office today and then we also have a a big office in Zug, outside of Zurich, for European headquarters. Um, so, you know, we people don't really realize. That a lot of times, when they think of Thomson Reuters, they think of Reuters, right? the The big media company, the photojournalists, you know what you see um, in the press, because it is, you know, one of the most trusted news sources on the planet. Um, but it's actually a pretty small part of our. Our business, a huge part of our brand, because Reuters has such a great brand. But Thomson Reuters together, we we actually have three big technology angles at the company. We sell a lot of software in the area of tax, a lot of software in the area of legal. So and think next generation tax, next generation legal, and then risk fraud and compliance. So if you think about that, we do a lot with money laundering and work with state and and the U.S. government. So. Um, that's a super simplified version of what we do, but we, we do have the biggest legal and tax software practices on the planet. So when we invest, we try to invest in either adjacent technologies or technologies in those verticals where we can really help the founder either through integration or go to market. So we really focus on that. We do look at news and media as well, although it is a smaller part of our, you know, overall technology piece, um. Uh, And and the Reuters team is very self-sufficient, as most people know, they're they're probably some of the best journalists and and, uh, media people out there. Um, But we we do look at some new technology in that space here as well. But mostly legal tech and risk fraud and compliance, I would say, are the big buckets that, that we look at and really where our revenue is generated today as a company.
1: So with that being said, then, when you guys are deploying that capital in those specific kind of industry and buckets, okay, uh, and you guys come alongside, because it's such a well-established brand, do you guys find, um, I'm curious, how do you guys look at that? Because I would imagine there's so much deal flow. How do you identify which deal? Because I do know you guys focus on the Series A kind of category a little bit. So there is proof of concept, there is, you know, value prop, they've probably got some revenue established. Um, help me understand a little bit better about your criteria. Is it really established on around the founder and saying, okay, well, uh, you know, the structure, of the personality, do they have previous exits, et cetera, or is it like also kind of the financials and maybe the, the, the proposition of the market? What does that look like?
0: Yeah, I would say we actually do really traditional diligence, like a, a standard venture fund with one exception, because we have our own tech practices and our own products we can bring in our head of product for tax or our head of product for legal or our go-to-market for the government sector if we see something we like. And often, even before we make an investment, and not always, but if we have time or they're not looking for their Series A right now, but their product is ready, um, we're happy to bring them to market with us, right? So there's a really cool company we're looking at right now. We talked to them about five months ago, introduced them to our head of product and our go-to-market. They're already integrated into our products that we're taking into the legal space. And you know what? We might do an investment in them now. So it can go in two ways. So because we're a corporate fund and because we're tightly aligned with business development, we often will will go ahead and take take, a... Take founders to market. And they love that, right? Because we can show them the value up front. Now we can move just as fast as a traditional venture fund. So if somebody's raising a Series A, they already have a lead. Our check size is usually three to five million. Um, and we need to move fast, we will do that. We, but we still will probably invite our head of product or somebody else to listen to the pitch because it helps us move with diligence faster, because we've got our own research teams, our own tech teams to be able to help us look at things. They're not part of the decision as far as our investment committee. We do keep that just to our venture fund. Um, We have an investment committee for the venture fund. Um, So we don't get permission, if you will, from product or engineering. That's not part of our process. But it helps us understand if the product is a good fit and if we can help that founder. But we do it as quickly as possible in most cases. So, um, yeah, I, I think. The big advantage of a good corporate fund is who's behind them, right? So I have a huge you know research team, engineering team, product teams, lawyers, tax accountants. they're all they all work here, right? So when I'm looking at a company I can say, hey, look at this new tech. what do you think? Um, it's the best diligence team anybody could ever ask for.
1: So, okay, so you have, because of your guys' resource, you have a a, kind of a a diligence team, which is nice, and they kind of give you an analysis and data. What uh, what are they looking for in regards to a good deal versus a bad deal? What are some of the red flags uh, that say, oh, this is probably not, we should probably go ahead and maybe next quarter or next year to be able to relook at that. What does that look
0: like? For us, we really try to look at like next generation, like what's in the horizon, Because we're building our own products, right, so we know what's happening in the market today, what's happening in the market a year from now, but what do we think our customers are going to need three years from now, four years from now, so we're trying to look much further out there very, um, I would say big bets and venture on kind of next generation tech. Um, horizon four, as they like to say, right? We, we we currently have horizon one, two, and maybe a little bit of horizon three. So from a venture perspective, we're looking at horizon three and four. So we'll bring that back in. A lot of times our internal teams haven't even seen, you know, various types of AI or machine learning, or we really love natural language processing, NLP, because we use a lot of that in our legal products. Um, so we really try to pull in, you know, what is the next generation there? And that's it to us, that's kind of a key part of why we make a decision to invest, right? Um, yes, product market fit important, you know, got to have something there so we understand where it fits and how we can help them. Um, revenue, not as critical, um, but I would say most now going into a series A, people do want to see a million plus or so in revenue and some sort of. Revenue waterfall that shows where that's coming from longer term, but we're really no different than any other fund, I think, out there.
1: Interesting. So and I'm curious because when I talk to a lot of VCs that are, you know, investing more of that, that unicorn style, right, where it's that pre-revenue kind of structure and they're just kind of looking at it. They rely a lot of their data on the founder, right? It's not so much as the the, 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 the product, the service, whatever it is. Um, it's really the, the established, the founder. And they put almost like 90% of their data on that. And in Series A, you and I understand that that company is at a different point and a different different stage. So I'm just curious if you could maybe put in a percentage-wise, how much how much emphasis do you put on the founder? How much emphasis do you put on the financials? And like you mentioned, how much emphasis do you put on the product market fit? Because I do understand when you look mm-hmm. at an offer an ordeal, it is very contextual, and you have to say there are certain green flags and red flags in each one of those categories that help you determine okay yes this is really good. And you kind of just laid that out a little bit, but I'd love for you to just maybe get a little bit micro with it. Say okay well you know you give like thirty three point three is it all even thirty three point three percent of founder and you're looking at it and say okay they've had success they've had at exit. They've done this. They've done that. Okay, cool. Check, check, check. Wonderful. And then they look at the financials. They got a million dollars. They got this. They got value prop. They got proof of concept. They got some uh, you know, letters of intent maybe established for some enterprise deals. So I'm just curious, or is it, is it slightly different? I, I just love to kind of get a little micro with it.
0: Yeah. Well, by the time you get to a series A, I would say we're not looking at just the founder. We're looking at the team, right? So who has that founder been able to bring in? So let's say there's three or four, right? So um, we'll look at the team, and that will be I would say forty to fifty percent, because you do need to make sure you have that team, as we discussed before. You can't have the you know the shortstop playing in every position, right? So we want to know that they brought in a really good CTO or or head of engineering, you know, and that the CEO is is running the company, and and that head of sales becomes a really key person right in that series A, in my opinion, right? Who's going to help them get to the series B? Getting from an A to a B is all about revenue, right? All about product market fit. So I would say yes, then we look at the financial. So half of it is the team and the track record of the team. And where were they before? And did that head of sales as an example, have they done this before? Because that's not it, that's a hard position to find, right? Somebody who can actually get them from a series A to a B. So that's really important. And then um, if you look at it from, from the other half, I would say, then we look at the product, right? So um, like, we'll try to dig in and see, is, is is this cooked enough that they can actually go sell it, right? So if I look at the revenue, because you could have sold a million dollars and really the product's not quite ready. So we will dig in on the product and make sure it really is ready to ship. Because the series A, you should be able to ship your product, right? That you should be, should be there. Um, And then we'll look at the waterfall, revenue, sales, you know, what do they have for the next year or so? But that ends up being a small percentage of the decision. Because first we had to have a great team. Then we had to have some sort of product market fit, right? Shipping some at least sort of revenue. So if you look at 50, 25, 25, but I still want to see you futuristic, right? So maybe I'm going 50, you know, 20, 20, 10. And the 10 is, show me what your waterfall is. Show me what your, you know what is the total addressable market, right? Everybody comes up with some crazy number. What's real? Like what, don't tell me you're going to go from 1 million to 50 million in one year, right? And we see that, I'm like, that's not going to happen.
1: I appreciate that. Yeah, and and uh, I see that all the time as well with the different slide decks and deals. It's like, oh my gosh, the projections of this. And It's like funny. So I appreciate you unpacking that. I do know it's very contextual, but I I love what you said there. It's regarding the team, the financial, the product, market fit. Now I want to ask you when you guys deploy capital, and you guys take a very active role in in that you know uh, in that company, right? That startup, whatever it is. Okay, and I'm curious, how do you guys like to see that? capital deployed or distributed? Is it more of R&D? Is it more sales? Is it more of, you know, building out the infrastructure? Uh, and I know it's contextual. It's really dependent upon what, what that looks like. But is there is there something that you prefer to say, okay, hey, we like to deploy this capital because we know we want to get a return on investment, et cetera?
0: Yeah. We're, so we usually take an observer role. We don't take a full board seat, just that's as a corporate fund. We don't so we we, we try to stick to our knitting and focus on go to market or product where that's where we can help the most right is there some sort of integration or go to market we can do. Um, as far as deployment of capital, uh, we, we will, we will help if asked, we do not want to get in the founders way right there. Are, Are generally speaking, um, while we write a sizable check, because we're usually in a syndicate, there's going to be a pretty good lead in there, right? And, you know, that's one of the things I, you know, on the surface, we kind of look at who's the lead going to be, are they going to be a good board member? Um, Because again, we're going to be a board observer, and we're going to, our value is going to be an integration, go to market, or we will be the customer, one of those three things. Um, And so... From that perspective, we try to stick to our knitting and focus on those three areas and let, you know, other board members, uh, you know, push on the, the mechanics of the day to day. If they ask us, we will definitely jump in and help. But, you know, we don't, we don't like to get in the way. We, we like to do what the founder asks us to do. And usually as a corporate fund, it's to help them sell more stuff.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, because I do know, and I've talked to some other investors or PE or you know firms, and everybody has their own like way of distributing or deploying that capital, and they like to see what that looks like. And I know it's contextual depending upon what the deal looks like. So I always love to ask that question. So I appreciate you explaining that. Uh, I want to mention something here and, and and talk a little bit about this. Uh, you on TechCrunch, you you wrote a, a nice, beautiful article about um gender diversity and VC funding struggled in 2020 and we talk a little bit offline about this and I thought this I want to bring this up because you and I we see that there are very few female founders out there in general right let's just start with that as the base and then I think you mentioned the stat about two to, they only get about two to three uh, uh percent of the deploy capital uh, yeah. which is very very offsetting of course I love to talk a little bit about kind of I'm just gonna let just sit you know say that, and then let you just kind of take it apart a little bit and let's why you think that is, how we can obviously help facilitate maybe more growth in female founders as well deploying the capital to to that um, demographic.
0: Yeah. so one thing I think is that's improving is there are more female founders. so that's good. I think we're seeing more um, uh, female founders start companies and and um, ask for capital. so I, I think that's great. But as you said, they're still getting a much lower percentage of that venture funding goes to to females or even underrepresented founders. That's a whole nother topic. Um, So I I would say, I I think it remains an issue, but I do believe it is getting slightly better. Um, I think as we have more female founders in the market asking for funding and more success, I mean, there is some stats that that say that female founded companies are more successful um, and they've got great, you know, track records. Um, I think as we see that and, and we see more female founded companies um, exit the market, either go public or, you know, you look at things like Canva is a great example. I mean, there's, you know, 10 more behind that, but um. As those become more visible, I think there will be more funding going to female founders. I I have to believe it, that's logic. Um, I haven't seen it yet. Um, We did, we funded an an amazing uh, company called Priori, two female founders. It was our second investment at the fund. Um, And I didn't do it just because they were female founders, right? They happen to be exceptional. Their product is one of the best products in the legal tech space. Um, for acquiring new business for for legal firms and for corporate corporate legal departments so we're excited to have priori as one of our portfolio companies and even more excited that it happened to be two female founders but yeah it's it's still unfortunate but i do i have you know high hopes that it's improving
1: that's awesome and i do understand that a lot of the female founders themselves just bootstrap their business and scale still, and very successful in their own right. But they've just been able to uh, bootstrap. Sometimes they, they may or may not need that that uh, capital uh, from from VC or a PE or, or or venture fund. Correct?
0: Yeah, that, it is true that that does happen. The question is, if they would have gotten funding, how much better could they have done, right? And how much faster could they get there, right? So, with a little bit of capital, a lot of times you can. Build your product faster. You can go to market faster. Um, but you're right. Um, there's a lot of successful female founders that have bootstrapped and and managed to um, you know get their companies either sold or, or to the public finish line. Um, and it's just more proof that you know female founders are pretty resilient in the, in the grand scheme of things. I think they juggle more than most. That's probably why
1: yeah they're, they're used to it and so of course they're, they're just you know spot on. Of course you, you you understand that. that's why you could speak on this uh, behalf. I want to ask a little bit about um, so you guys just find a little bit and really integrating the, the the technology that we talked a little bit about, right Thomas Worders. And I want to just talk maybe if you could share a few case studies uh, maybe previous you know companies that you've, you've acquired uh, talking a little bit about obviously the the, the smooth transition of integrating that technology, but also, you know, the, the trajectory because you guys were able to come right alongside that, that that company and those founders and support them in their own right. And just give a few examples of some of the, the, the recent transitions or transactions you guys been able to establish.
0: Yeah, sure. You know, we're a relatively new fund, but I think it's even more proof that I'll give some examples of where we've been able to, you know, quickly work with the founders and and help them. You know, our first investment um, was in a company called Legible, and not to talk about crypto in today's market, it's been a little crazy over the past couple of weeks, but they actually have technology that is um, accounting for crypto assets, right, which maybe we need more than ever, um, given the last two weeks of what's been happening. Um, but, but the reality is we don't have any software that, that tracks those type of assets in our current technology, but they did. And so we can actually integrate that software into our normal tax package, if you will, so that the accountants and the CPAs and the bigger firms that want, and that have customers that have those types of assets that, that they do have to track, um, and, you know, um, be able to complete the taxes for them or their tax filings, um, they can use this software. So our sales guys can put it in their regular um, bag and sell it to any of our existing tax customers. So that was a, a really good example of technology. Again, it's not, it's not crypto. It's actually infrastructure that supports that type of asset from a tax um, reporting uh, standpoint. So a really good example there. Um, Priori, the female-founded legal tech company that I mentioned, they actually have kind of an automated RFP process so that a corporate law firm um, could, uh, I'll give an example like Google, could, if they need a specific type of legal talent, say for bringing things into the port of Louisiana, right? So, you know, you need somebody who understands the law in Louisiana, and therefore you need to understand how to bring goods into that port. You're not going to have that in-house counsel, right? They're not going to understand that. So can I submit, you know, something out there that would then get me that type of legal talent, um, and be able to secure that. And there's a product internally at Thomson Reuters called Legal Tracker. And corporate law firms and big law firms use that to track time. So we use outside counsel for a bunch of different legal tasks, a lot of different legal tasks. And we use they those law firms use something called Legal Tracker to tell me how much I'm spending on my legal spend for different projects and different categories, right? So they've integrated that into their core product that they now have both the marketplace and this RFP. I'm simplifying it for, for the sake of, you know getting through the discussion, but but they're able to use some of our technology with their own technology and they just have a great product. I mean, many corporate law firms have picked this up now to solve, you know, a, a big problem of finding the right legal talent for a specific problem. So it's it's, relatively, um, I want to say easy, but we do try to really dig in and figure out where these founders who have legal tech or tax tech or risk fraud and compliance technology or anything adjacent, how can we help them, right? And so we do a you know working session early on right away when we meet them and say, how can we help you go to market? Um, which hopefully makes them understand taking our money is going to be uh, valuable to them. Not just from a money perspective.
1: You know what's interesting to me is um, how you're able to integrate that in a very smooth transition, right? Um, I'm curious though, with because these are these these kind of technology for those specific uses. Um, I would, with the founders that you're working with, do you have to? Is there a lot of education on the front end, or do they already see the value and say, yes, we need that? Make sure that we're obviously protecting ourselves long term. What does that look like?
0: Yeah, I would say if they are calling, if they are doing anything related to tax or anything related to legal, they know who we are. So, I mean, we're we're the biggest player in both of those categories. Risk fraud and compliance, although we're a big player there, sometimes we have to do some education in that category. Um, In other categories, sometimes it's adjacent, so they don't know us as well. So we'll say, You know, we're calling on the same person that you call on and here's the value. Right. It's adjacent to what we do, but we can help you. Right. So in some cases we have to do a bit of a education, but I would say if they're in tax or legal, they know who we are.
1: Yeah, I figured they did, but I was just curious that they saw, you know, integrating that into their, their their platform, et cetera. And what I found so interesting is you guys able to integrate that. And, you know, I would I don't know the numbers and maybe you could share, like, obviously, the, the profit margins increase just because you don't have to hire as much or, you know, do a lot of that is automated. A lot of that is systematic. And maybe you have a manager that does, you know, instead of hiring 10 or 15 people or a very high CPA on the back end for financials or taxes, you're able to really systemize that whole process. Is that correct? Just because you're able to streamline yeah. with your
0: technology? I would say, yeah, in most cases with legal and tax technology, you're going to reduce uh, either time to market or just cost. Um, but we did just do an investment in a company called Data Grail um, that really isn't in our wheelhouse specifically, but they sell it to the general counsel in most corporates. So we sell all of our stuff to the general counsel and most corporates. What they do is they, they can pull personal information so that if you're you know buying something at, you know I don't know, Target, and uh, you have a Target credit card or a Target red card, um, and you call them and you say, I need all of my data, I need you to clear it away, right? For whatever reasons, personal reason, or they've had a, a fraud issue, they've gotta be able to do that from a regulatory perspective yes, in Europe for sure, and even more so now in the United States. So Datacrail can integrate into all these backend systems. They have 1400 plus integrations and they can with a single click wipe away or pull all the data to be able to look at where your name is in that database for Salesforce, for Restoration Hardware, some of those big companies that need, they have to be able to do this. And it used to take them, you know, 10, 20 people to be able to find your name, and where you sat, and every time you went in to buy something, or you know, in in the case of Salesforce, every time somebody's looking you up, you know, on their CRM system. So um, they save a ton of money, right? Because they've automated the entire process on going out and finding personal information. But they're calling on the same person we're calling out, so we can go into that general counsel together and offer them a solution that's a great fix for the problem we know they have.
1: It's well, a holistic approach. I love that because they're already coming in to service yeah. this and you come alongside and say, Hey, well we can service XYZ because you're gonna you know, be in that same situation. Exactly. This is really, really uh, Tamara, I really appreciate our conversation today. I love the journey of, you know, what you had to go through, but also, you know, the skills, the lessons, and really being able to dial this in, but also the unpacking your guys' thesis and investment thesis and your strategy and how Thomas Worders are able to come alongside at a very, very uh, integral part of these these founders, really helping them take it to the next level because deploying capital, but also the technology and streamlining it uh, because of your guys' infrastructure. Um, Tamara, for those that are listening, uh, that want to learn more, that want to maybe see the Value, of course, they definitely see the value of it and they want to have that conversation or maybe a conversation with your team. Um, how do they do that?
0: Um, they can email me at just uh, Tamara.Steffens at tr.com. Um, uh, and I'm on Twitter at Tamara Steffens, so they can DM me there. That's always a good way. Or LinkedIn, uh, link into me at Tamara Steffens and send me an email. And I'd be happy to answer any of those. As a former operator, at the two examples I gave you, I, I do try to really understand from the founder's perspective um, how to help, right? And, and what can I do? And I, I I promise not to be the shortstop that will run to right field and try to catch the ball and play my position to drive their growth and hopefully drive their revenue numbers um, to where they can get to the next round and be successful. And therefore we can be successful together. That's the, that's the beauty of it, right? I think somebody said, I, I read on Twitter, I can't remember who, who said it? But uh, they said uh, the best VCs were always they were first operators, and uh, I like to say I agree with that 100%. Um, if you've done it yourself and you've, you know, had to make payroll and figure out how how you were going to get to the next round, you're much more likely to be able to sit down and help that founder.
1: So valuable and having those synergistic relationships between the founder and the fund at a very, very high level and a deep level, just not just the financial right in the check, right? It's so much more. Uh, Tamara, again, I really appreciate it. Those, uh, th- those that are listening, those links are in the description below. Uh, her Twitter account, her LinkedIn, uh, her website, her email as well. Tamara, I really appreciate you know, being accessible like that. That's really awesome. So make sure you guys go ahead and, and access her and uh, reach out if you have questions, communicate with her, engage with her content as well. And Tamara, before I let you go again, I really appreciate you being on here. I always love to ask my guests before I let you go, is there any last words of wisdom? They like to share with our audience. I,
0: you know, um, I <laughs> I really don't have any words of wisdom except uh, I do like to to repeat again. I think if everybody plays their position, um, you end up with a much better team. So um, and it's teams that win, right? So I, I I do believe in that, and I I believe we have a great team at Thomson Reuters, and I look forward to hearing from your audience and. Any feedback anybody has, uh, good or bad, I'd love to hear it.
1: Stay in your lane. I love it. And that's a lot of wisdom. My friend, that is the managing director of Thomas Reuters Ventures, my friend, Tamra Stephens. Guys, that is Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. Until next time, be in common if you can. Yo, this is Christian D. Evans, Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. We thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode. If you feel and you know that this was valuable to you, please show some love to our amazing guests by liking this, by commenting on this, by making sure that you do a nice five-star review and just show some love to our guests. That'd be really awesome. Also, make sure you share this with a friend, a family, a colleague, someone that you believe would bring value to their life right now. and. Guys, we just wanna say thank you again for just being part of our community. If you wanna have more resources, don't be afraid. Go to christiandevans.com. You can actually schedule a phone call with me or you can send me an email at christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. That's christian.evans at beuncommonifyoucan.com. Always love to hear some feedback and let me know what is the number one or two things that you are struggling in your business and your life, and we'll make sure we have those conversations. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Davin's podcast, and until next time, remember, be uncommon if you can. Cheers.